The two witnesses, let's do this, Revelation 11, verses 1 through 7. Pretty exciting. This is a great section in the book of Revelation. So I'm going to read 1 through 7. You can follow along with me in your Bible or on the screen, whatever you prefer. It's good to use your Bible so you don't get out of the habit. It's good to bring your Bible with you to church and use it. Don't rely totally on that screen. What if it burned out some Sunday? Then what would you do? So here we go. Revelation 11, beginning verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you to give us insight, understanding, as we study this passage, we know that there's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation, but we shouldn't be too quick, Father, to look at all these things as merely and purely symbolic. We know that unless indicated otherwise, we should take these things as literally as possible. We know that you do, and so we ask you to guide us through this section of Scripture in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I do want to point out that there is a tendency to uh, perhaps overemphasize the symbolic nature of the book of Revelation. We know that a lot of what we've talked about so far, we've kind of identified. We know that uh, the, the celestial happenings, the meteor showers and so forth, and you know, there have even been a lot of movies made about that and many scientists predicting that we could in fact, uh, have a, a termination event at some point in the future where a massive meteor strikes the earth and they call it an extinction event. There's been movies about it. Apocalypse, right? With uh, Bruce Willis a few years ago. And there was another one. And they've been depicted in various films. But we read about these things in Revelation, these astronomical events taking place. And those certainly should be taken literal. The description here of the two witnesses, it may sound a little over the top, but there's no reason not to believe that God certainly has the ability to do these kinds of miracles through these two men. So don't be so quick to just chalk it up as symbolic. So he was given a read, John, by the, this mighty angel, apparently, that he's been inter interacting with, he was given a reed like a measuring rod, and he was told to measure the temple of God and the altar. This refers specifically to the holy place and the most holy place, the holy of holies, 
where only the high priest was allowed to enter, and there only once a year. Remember, in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant and all that. Moses' budding rod, the cherubim over the, uh, the mercy seat there and all that. In the Holy of Holies, high priest would enter once a year to make atonement on the Day of Atonement. The Holy of Holies, not the holy place, outside the Holy of Holies, the priests were allowed to be in there and to do their various tasks. And then there was an outer court uh, called the Court of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were not allowed to go any further than that outer court. Now, here's an interesting thought as we're studying this. When John wrote this 2,000 years ago, it was written towards the end of the first century. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., right? There was no temple in Jerusalem when John wrote this. What does this tell us? We're in the midst of the tribulation here, the seven-year tribulation, almost to the halfway point. This tells us that the temple will be rebuilt right at the beginning of the tribulation, apparently, and they will reinstitute animal sacrifice. He says to measure temple, the altar, and those who worship there. And there are two groups right now in Israel, the Orthodox, the ultra-Orthodox, who are even now planning for the, the new temple. I've shared multiple occasions, how I've had opportunity on multiple occasions to visit the Temple Institute, which right now is located right at the top of the steps that lead down from the Jewish quarter, the old city of Jerusalem. As you stand at the top of the steps, you can see the Temple Mount, you can see the Dome of the Rock, you can see all the way over to the Mount of Olives and so forth. And then as you go down these steps, they go down and then they turn left, and you can go all the way down to the plaza area there where the Wailing Wall is. And there's also a place where you can go through across a bridge and get up to the Temple Mount. Very high security, only allowed to go certain times of the day. But the Temple Institute moved from a smaller space, a little farther down, right here next to the top of the steps, and they will take you on a tour and they will show you all the garments for the priests, the musical instruments. In fact, encased in heavy, heavy plexiglass, right adjacent to the entrance to the Temple Institute, which is kind of like a museum, to the left of the, where you go down the steps, they have encased in heavy plexiglass a giant golden menorah, real gold, which has been created to be placed in the new temple. So do you think these guys are serious about rebuilding their temple? In fact, the word on the street is, and this has been the case for quite some time, quite a number of years, that they have everything needed to reconstruct the temple is already prefabricated and stored in a warehouse or warehouses somewhere in Jerusalem. So all they're waiting for, right now the, the Muslims have total control of the Temple Mount. But at some point God is going to intervene. Something's going to happen to change that scenario. And once they have access to the Temple Mount, they will reconstruct the temple. And they even show a video at the end of the tour where they've got these uh, cable cars going up to the Temple Mount from various places 
right outside the old city where you can go and get on a cable car. They've got a huge, amazing plan in place to really restore and refurbish Jerusalem thanks to our previous president. For the first time since Israel became a nation again, Jerusalem became officially recognized as the capital of Israel. Now, who knows? Joe Biden may undo that like everything else he's been undoing. Several presidents going back at least as far as George W. Bush, Bush, Clinton, I think Clinton also, Clinton, Bush, Obama, they all said they were going to move the embassy to Jerusalem. I believe the House and the Senate had passed an authorization to do that. But for all those years under those previous presidents, they kept putting it off, putting it off, and it took the outsider, Donald Trump, to actually do it to actually move our embassy to Jerusalem. So, just like all the people in positions of power and authority and money and influence hated Jesus, I'm not saying Donald Trump is Jesus, but see, contrary to what people tend to think, they believe all the fake news, all the lies, all the accusations, usually... The more that those kind of people hate you, the more likely it is you're doing the right thing. So, we have the temple being rebuilt at the beginning. And this, Daniel chapter 9, we talked about this several weeks ago. The peace treaty that the Antichrist, he may not be recognized as the Antichrist at the beginning. We see that halfway in is where he really... shows his true self, but this world leader, I'm sure, will rise to power at the beginning of the tribulation. He will negotiate some kind of a Middle East peace treaty and perhaps even beyond, but that is what will allow the Israelis to rebuild their temple. So Jewish worship, real Jewish worship, has not existed for 2,000 years. Because without animal sacrifice, there is no true Jewish worship. Halfway through, as we know, and we'll get to that pretty soon here in chapter 13. Halfway through, three and a half years into the tribulation, the Antichrist will exalt himself to be worshipped, creating the abomination of desolation. But 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4 says, Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, with a big D, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. The son of perdition, this is the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Again, mentioning a temple that at the time this was written, was either extinct or close to extinction. So this is a future event when the temple is rebuilt. But the falling away comes first. Now, the the traditional interpretation has been, and the one that I've adhered to, the falling away. There's a great apostasy in the last days. The Bible clearly teaches that, that many who least identify as Christians, as believers, will fall away from the true faith. They'll be deceived. 
They'll be led into false belief systems, false worship, and so forth. But the other interpretation, which I've been made aware of recently, the falling away means the catching away of the saints. Either one works. In fact, I believe it can be both because there will be those two events taking place just prior to the beginning of the tribulation. A great falling away from the faith which is already occurring even as we speak. You know that, right? You know that there's been a tremendous dilution and pollution of the Christian faith. You know that, right? There's a lot of false teaching going on out there. False gospels and so forth. That's already happening. And very soon, we will be caught up because you could also interpret this falling away as being snatched away which is what the Greek word raptus means the rapture of the church the catching away of the saints make note too as we read here in 2 Thessalonians that he's called the son of perdition we'll go back to that later on okay verse 2 but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it For it's been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. 42 months equals what? Three and a half years. This is speaking of the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, known as the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament. It says, leave out the court. So, when the angel tells John to measure the holy place, the most holy place, the altar, and the people who worship there, but the court of the Gentiles, which during the time of Christ, the court of the Gentiles was under Jewish control. Again, Gentiles were only allowed to go that far. They couldn't go into the holy, of, holy place, the second level, but it was under Jewish control. During the tribulation, apparently... Particularly during the second half, it'll be under Gentile control. Just like the Temple Mount right now is under, the Muslims would be considered Gentiles because they're not Jewish. This outer court, by the way, is where the, they've calculated the location of the temple prior to, to its destruction. And the outer court appears to be the area where the Dome of the Rock Mosque stands right now there have been some who've said in order to rebuild the temple you would have to get rid of the dome of the rock mosque tear it down blow it up do something but not necessarily because they have figured out that this area where the court of the gentiles would be is where the dome of the rock is so technically theoretically they could rebuild the temple without having to touch the dome of the rock and that would comport with what we're told here don't measure that it's been given over to the Gentiles and again this could be part of that seven year peace treaty that the Antichrist will orchestrate at the beginning of the tribulation it could be an agreement whereby the Muslims will concede a certain part of the temple mount to the Jews to build their temple while the Muslims retain the dome of the rock there on temple mount Now, we're told these Gentiles will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So during the last half of the tribulation, the Antichrist 
The first half, he's going to let the Jews do their thing. They think everything's hunky-dory. In fact, one of the reasons he's called the Antichrist is because the Jewish people are going to embrace him as their Messiah. Because anyone who can orchestrate this peace treaty and make it possible for them to rebuild their temple, they think they've got everything they could hope for now. They can reinstitute their sacrifices. They can have full temple worship. He's going to be great to them. But halfway through, he's going to show his true colors. He's going to shut down all worship except for worship of him. And he'll unleash his forces against the Jews, bringing about the last holocaust prior to the return of Christ. We'll read about this more in chapter 12. It's a sad thing. I wish it were not true. I certainly don't have any desire to see the Jews suffer any more than they already have. But we've already seen the uprising of anti-Semitism again. Even in the United States of America, there's been a growing, and it's even within the liberal churches, who tend to criticize Israel, to be pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel, certainly those on the left. One of the few things that the left and the right used to agree on was their support for Israel. But that doesn't exist anymore. You've got many anti-Semitic people in the Democratic Party. Elon Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, the squad, and so forth. And nobody censors them. Nobody silences them. They are free to spew their garbage about Israel. And you know what? The Bible says that those who bless Israel will be blessed, and those who curse Israel will be cursed. Now, we just left an administration where Israel was getting blessed big time. And we now have one where Israel's getting cursed. That should make you want to go home and pray. Because these people are going to drag our country right down the drain. Because you cannot mess with Israel. The Bible says they're the apple of God's eye. I don't even care whether you like them or not. We're supposed to love them. We're grafted in. We've become part of Israel. We are spiritual Israel. It's just like the whole situation with Donald Trump. A lot of people don't like him. You know what? I don't care if you like him or not. If, if he supports pro-life, if he supports Israel, if he supports all these godly biblical values, then he's fine by me. Amen. It has nothing to do with his what he's done in the past, his personal life, what he's been doing, has been doing since he was elected president. Some people think he still is president. Isn't that interesting? When have you ever seen that before? I don't know if you follow all that kind of underground information that's out there. There's a lot of people who think he's still the president. I think Joe Biden thinks he's still the president. Tell you, that Trump's still the president. I'm pretty sure Joe Biden doesn't know that he's the president. And I tell you who definitely doesn't know that Joe Biden's the president, and that's Kamala Harris. Uh-oh, he's getting real political here. Never done that before. All right, let's move on. Nothing to see here. <laughs> so the trigger point here for this treading the holy city underfoot for 42 months 
will be when he sets himself up in the temple to be worshipped as God, as we'll see in chapter 12. A great number of the Jews, the ones who are clearly seeing what's happening, and perhaps the ones who have already decided to become followers of Jesus Christ, and that's the goal for God to restore Israel, to bring them to a knowledge of his son as Savior. They will flee to Jordan, the rock fortress of Petra or Petra there in Jordan. Again, there are differing views on this part too. Luke 21, 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. Of course, that happened in 70 AD. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We're not there yet. Now, some people believe, Pastor Chuck Smith being one, I think, that the time of the Gentiles will be over as we move into the tribulation because the focus returns to the nation of Israel and the judgment of the Gentile nations. Charles Ryrie, on the other hand, whom I also respect, argues that the time of the Gentiles will not conclude until the end of the tribulation. And that makes a lot of sense because we see this final persecution of the Jewish people during the last three and a half years of the tribulation. But then at the end of that time, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, returns to this planet along with all of his children. That would be us. He returns to rule this planet for a thousand years. And that would definitely signal an end to the time of the Gentiles with a Jewish Messiah on the throne of the entire world. At any point, we're getting very, very close to the end of the time of the Gentiles, which signifies a time of an overarching heathen mentality in the world. Even though there are millions of believers all over the world, it could be as high as a billion or more, I suppose, true believers, true followers of Christ, the majority of the world is Gentile. You and I are not Gentiles anymore. Do you know that? Even though you're ladies and Gentile men. Make note of that, Carl. No. It was semi-effective, so. We're no longer Gentiles. We've been grafted in. When you read about Gentile in the Bible, it has the connotation of heathen, barbarian, non-believer, and so forth. Notice, see, I've tried to point this out to you many times. You have to really look at Scripture because sometimes you can have two events separated by thousands of years in the same verse. Here's a perfect example, Luke 21, 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. That's the diaspora where the Jews are dispersed all over the world. That took place in 70 A.D. when Titus, the Roman general, brought his legions into Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, destroyed the city. But then the second half of the verse, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's a future event. The two parts of this verse are separated by a couple of thousand years. So make note of that. All right, verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So two Old Testament figures will return to preach the gospel to the Jews. We've already seen the 144,000 sealed, set aside, set apart 
to be evangelists, first and foremost to the Jewish people, but not exclusively to the Jewish people. 144,012 from each tribe, remember? 12,000 from each tribe. Now we have these two Old Testament figures they will prophesy three and a half years. Now here's where it gets tricky. I've always believed, and others that I have aligned with, that this three and a half years has to do with the first half of the tribulation. So we just saw what's going to happen in the second half, and now we jump back to the first half. Now there are some who believe that this is also referring to the second half, but I want to give you at least six reasons here why this is probably the first half. Remember, as I've told you before, not everything in Revelation is chronological. So, it is the opinion of a number of people, myself included, that we've been looking at the second half, but now we jump back to the first half, and I'll give you the reasons why. First, it is the beast who is destroyed at the close of the tribulation. Revelation 19.20, the beast is destroyed at the end of the tribulation, not the witnesses. And we're going to see, as we saw what we read here today, after they finish their ministry, they are killed by the beast, by the Antichrist. But at the end of the tribulation, it's the Antichrist himself who is killed. Now, it's more natural to understand the overthrow of the Jewish prophets as leading to the defilement of the temple and the abomination of desolation that follows. Prior to their overthrow, they're individual and almost, uh, they are invincible rather, and almost certainly would not allow the beast to sit in the holy place to declare himself as God. Until God's finished with them, they're invincible. Anybody who tries to kill them, fire comes out of their mouth and consumes them. Thirdly, why would the two Jewish witnesses who are the key in the revival of the Jews during the tribulation be found in Jerusalem after the Jews have fled elsewhere due to the intense persecution of the dragon, which we'll meet in chapter 12? And that begins what we're going to look at in chapter 12 with the dragon, who is Satan. That happens at the midpoint of the final seven years of the tribulation, halfway through the tribulation. So, in other words, the Jewish people are going to flee because of the persecution, so it would make no sense to send the two witnesses there when most of the Jews are already gone. Fourthly, how could the beast overcome the witnesses at the end of the 70th week or the tribulation, seven years of the tribulation, and the world throw a big celebration? We're going to see that too. We haven't gotten there yet. But when the two witnesses are killed, they have a big party. They have a big celebration because people can watch it all over the world on satellite TV, on the internet, which, by the way, could never have happened until this time we're living in now. Couldn't have happened 100 years ago. The whole world couldn't have watched the two witnesses be killed and have a worldwide Zoom party. Right? Never could have happened before. And at the very end of the tribulation, what's going to be happening, the Antichrist is going to be heavily involved with the campaign of Armageddon, and then Jesus comes back and destroys them, destroys them all. The timeline just doesn't fit. Fifthly, the overthrow of the prophets would more naturally contribute to the rise and fame of the beast, would elevate him to an even higher level as he appears to overcome them. 
Sixthly and finally, if Christ returns with the resurrected saints to the earth, and he will at the end of the tribulation, then why do, why do these two resurrected witnesses ascend to heaven? As we'll see next week after the Antichrist kills them and then they, uh, they are resurrected on the third day like Jesus, then they ascend back into heaven. But if Jesus is already coming back with the saints, that would make no sense. Now, all these issues that I've just raised, they all disappear if this three and a half years or 1260 days mentioned here are understood as denoting the first half of the week, first half of the tribulation, including a powerful witness to Jerusalem, culminating in the ascent of the beast to overthrow the witnesses and exert full control over the temple, as Paul relates in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, the man of sin, the man of perdition, the son of perdition. So, even though some might conclude that this three and a half years of the witnesses is during the last half, I would stick with my original position, which is that their ministry takes place during the first three and a half years. And that's perfectly understandable because not everything in Revelation is chronological. We're told that these two men are clothed in sackcloth. That sounds a lot like John the Baptist. I don't believe either one of them is John the Baptist. But that clothing of sackcloth, it signifies humility. It's also a garment of mourning. And there again, it would be a mourning in advance of the coming final Jewish persecution at the hands of the Antichrist. Where they're called in verse 4, the two olive trees and the two lampstands. The olive tree, as you probably know, is symbolic for the nation and people of Israel, as is the fig tree or the olive tree. And these two mighty prophets are sent by God to call his people to repentance, faith, and Jesus Christ, and to expose the false Messiah, the Antichrist. Zechariah actually prophesies of these two men, Zechariah 4.12 and through 14. And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes? from which the golden oil drains. So he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. It was speaking in the contemporary context of Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, but it also had prophetic significance of the coming of the two witnesses in Revelation. Verse 5, if anyone wants to harm them, and I'm sure a lot of people will want to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth, that's the power we read about in verse 3. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. We find that these miraculous powers of the two unnamed witnesses are like those of Elijah and Moses. You go back to Exodus 7, chapter 8, 1 Kings 7, Moses and Exodus 7 and 8. Elijah, 1 Kings 17, 18, 2 Kings chapter 1. So many Bible scholars and students believe that these two witnesses will be Moses and Elijah. And there is that prophecy that Elijah would come again before the coming of the Lord. So many people were looking for that at the time of Christ's first coming. And he said, okay, so if you will, John the Baptist is Elijah. Not literally, but he came in the spirit of Elijah, that prophetic spirit. But literally, Elijah, we believe, will be one of these two witnesses fulfilling that Old Testament prophecy. And uh, by the way, as you probably recall, 
Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on Mount Hermon, on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember? He took Peter, James, and John up there, and all of a sudden Moses and Elijah appeared. So what does that tell you? They're alive, right? And what does that also tell you? We too are going to live forever if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. So they're there together, glowing. Jesus, the Peter, James, and John saw Jesus in his heavenly glory there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so, again, that is the most popular understanding, though they are not named. The most popular understanding is that more than likely these two witnesses will be. And again, it won't be their first appearance. Uh, you remember that old joke from our good friend Avi Lipkin where he talks about Jesus shows up at the customs uh, gate there in uh, Jerusalem, in Israel. The guy doesn't know what to do. He's a little confused, so he, he sends for his supervisor. And they say, this, there's this guy there at the gate, and he says he's the Messiah. And so he sends for a supervisor. The supervisor comes down and says, Hello, sir. Uh, how are you? Nice to, nice to have you here. I just wanted to ask you one question is this your first visit to Israel? Get it? Jesus, Messiah, Jews. Hello? <laughs> Don't make note of that one, Carl. <laughs> but the thing is, I got it from Avi Lipkin, so you can blame him. But is this your first visit? Okay. Maybe you are Gentiles after all. Okay. Okay, never mind. So again, we see this exhibiting of supernatural powers very much like we saw from Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament. Specifically here, this, their ability to breathe fire, which may sound wild and crazy to you and I, but doesn't the Bible say with God all things are possible? And without, with God, nothing is impossible. We know that uh, both of those guys did some pretty amazing things when they were here on earth the first time. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner, so charbroiled. That will be the, the method of execution. And again, these powers are given to them by God for two reasons. One, to confirm the validity of their message. It's hard to argue with somebody who can breathe fire, right? If they tell you Jesus is the Messiah, you best believe them. And then to provide them with divine protection. And as I've told you so many times, and it certainly applies here to the two witnesses, you're not going anywhere until God's done with you. So there's going to be a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to messing with these two guys, Moses and Elijah. First Chronicles 16.22, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Now some of these fake charlatans out there have used this verse to try to say you can't judge them if they have false doctrine. That's a total misapplication of this verse. First of all, I had this discussion recently with some folks, and they, we were all in agreement that there are no longer any prophets, I think it was men's prayer, of the caliber and the stature and the nature of the prophets we read about in the Bible. If you want to get technical and you want to call yourself a prophet, and I've actually met people who go around with a little business card and it says prophet on it. You ever met one of those types? They'll come up to you in church and they'll give you your card and brother, you know, brother Erastus, whatever. 
prophet. That's a very risky thing to do. Because you realize in the Old Testament, one wrong prophecy and you get stoned to death. There's a zero tolerance policy with God when it comes to false prophets. So we should all be very careful when we say God told me this or God told me that. We've had people say God told them to kill their kids, right? Or their spouse. (laughs) Or what have you. The New Testament prophets, we've talked about this before when we've had teachings on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, prophecy, the gift of prophecy had to do with the foretelling of future events. And so we have prophecies in the Old Testament that have already come to pass. We have some that have yet to come to pass. But the Bible is 100% prophetically accurate. There's no margin of error or room for error. But in the New Testament, you know, in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about God gave gifts to the church, apostles and prophets and pastors, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Pastor teacher is a hyphenated function within the church. A pastor should be able to teach. But the, the New Testament prophets did not have the same ministry as the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets were foretelling of future events, whereas New Testament prophets were foretelling the Word of God with a prophetic anointing or sense to it. And so within the gift and ministry of pastor, teacher, preaching, teaching, there can be a prophetic element to that but it doesn't carry the same type of weight, if you will, as the Old Testament prophets who were literally giving forth the Word of God. Anyway, let's move on from that. Their power, the supernatural powers, and so forth. Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. So God wasn't talking about Benny Hinn when he said that or any of these other charlatans out there. He was talking about his true prophets, the ones that we have their books in the Bible. Okay, so verse 6. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. We've already read leading up to this section about the intense heat, drought, and so forth that will be coming upon the earth. And by the way, again, this points to Elijah because it's exactly what he did when he was here on earth the first time. James 5, 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a man just like us. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. This is under the reign of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Um, I don't know. Something's wrong. It's either me or you. I don't know which. (laughs) Make note of that, Carl. Okay, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Just like what's happening here. Again, pointing very strongly to the likelihood that one of these two witnesses is Elijah. So one of their, another of their demonstrations of power 
is this shutting down the rain. Now, not, probably not worldwide, but definitely as they are there in Jerusalem preaching, evangelizing, that that region would be experiencing an extreme drought. I mean, it could be worldwide. We're not told for sure. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood. Who does that remind you of? Moses. Exodus seven nineteen through 20, The Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone, And Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod, struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. Can you see now why there's a strong suspicion that these two guys will be Elijah and Moses? Makes a lot of sense. And to strike the earth with all plagues. Again, like Moses and Exodus, the plagues of Egypt. That's what they're called by the Hebrews. We call them the ten biblical plagues. They're known officially within the Hebrew community as the plagues of Egypt. And so all signs seem to point to Moses and Elijah. And by the way, I don't know if you just saw where just recently over in Israel, they had a scenario where a river turned to blood literally. And it turned out it was a result of... uh, Blood and animal parts from a slaughterhouse were dumped into a river, and the river is flowing with blood. So some people were freaking out about that. And they're to strike the earth with plagues as often as they desire. And that's what you call carte blanche when it comes to judgments these men are given. So they will have a powerful and tremendous impact. And again, I think looking at all the various issues that the most likely scenario is that they appear during the first half of the tribulation. When they finish their testimony, verse 7, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. When they finish their testimony after three and a half years. Man, that's a long time that they're going to be preaching, evangelizing, doing miracles. So you see that even in the midst of judgment, and the tribulation is definitely a time of judgment, God's still pouring out His grace, His mercy, giving people every possible opportunity to repent, to come to Christ. He sends these two men. And no doubt, even though their ministry will be located in Jerusalem, they'll be seen all over the world, right? You have all these YouTubers and different people with thousands and even millions of views, right? you got to believe with what these guys are going to be up to. They're going to have a lot of people watching all over the world. And nobody will be allowed to shut them down until God's done with them. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, again, this is the beast, the Antichrist, and it would appear, the language here indicates, that he will be personally indwelt by Satan himself. It won't be the first time in human history that this has happened. We can suspect a number of horrible tyrants down through the centuries that probably had that same dishonor, if you will, of being inhabited personally. See, Satan can only be one place at a time. You know that, right? 
See, it's crazy because all over the world there are Christians who are blaming the devil for stuff that's going on, but he can only be at one place at a time. Now, he does have helpers, little helpers, but he can only be at one place at a time, so you know he's going to consolidate his power where it matters the most. You know, you might suspect that someone like an Adolf Hitler was personally possessed or inhabited by Satan. And certain other individuals down through history. But this beast, this Antichrist, is mentioned in chapter 6, 2, 13, 1, 14, 9, chapter 11, chapter 15, verse 2, chapter 16, verse 2, 17, verse 3, and 13, 19, verse 20, and 20, verse 10. And that's the last we'll see of him. Again, we do have at least one biblical historical reference to someone being personally entered by Satan. Luke 22.3, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. Of course, in order for that to happen, Judas had to open himself up to that, didn't he? You have a choice. We all have a choice. We can open ourselves up to God, invite Christ into our lives, into our hearts, to be our Lord and our Savior. We can confess our sins before God, repent, turn to God, turn away from sin, turn to God, and ask God to inhabit us with His Holy Spirit. Or we can choose to reject that opportunity and instead open ourselves up to other possibilities. And in Judas's case, and in the case of the Antichrist, it was to be personally entered into by Satan himself. And it's interesting because both Judas and the Antichrist, the beast, are called the son of perdition. We saw that earlier in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. They're both called the son of perdition. So, the beast that rises up out of the bottomless pit, the Antichrist, inhabited personally by Satan, will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So, yes, sometimes those things do happen. We have a history down through the centuries of God's people being martyred, killed for their faith. But see, God's viewpoint is a lot different than ours because God knows, and we should know too, that physical death is a promotion. We should have no fear of physical death because that just means we get to go to the next level. We get to leave this world of sin and go be with God. So at the proper time, God's timing, God's given the, the world. That's another reason why I think it's at the first half. God's giving the world so many opportunities to repent, to turn, even in the midst of tribulation. But after three and a half years, that opportunity comes to an end. As we'll see in the next chapter 12, we won't get there next week, we'll finish chapter 11, that the Jews will flee, and so the, the ministry of the two witnesses will no longer be needed. Only by God's permission can they be killed when he's finished with them here on earth. And when he's finished with you and he's finished with me, we're gone, we're done. And that should be okay. But this is not the end of their story there's more to come. We'll get into that next week. Let's stand. You'd think their death would be the end, but it's not. Just like our death is not the end. It's the beginning. Let's bow our heads for prayer.
And I'm going to ask anyone who would like prayer this morning, if you'd raise your hand so we can pray for you. God sees your hand. God knows your heart. He knows why you're raising your hand. So, Father, even now I lift up those that have raised their hand. I know that everyone here takes this seriously. We don't just take it lightheartedly. We believe in the power of prayer, Father. We believe, we know that you are faithful, that you do hear, your, hear our prayers, you do answer our prayers. We know, of course, Lord, everything is subject to your will and your timing, but we do. Lift up each one now, Lord, whether it might be someone needing salvation here today, that you would help them to enter into that personal relationship with you, Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help them, Lord, give them the gift of faith, the gift of repentance, to believe, to confess their sins before you, and to receive your forgiveness in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray for those with health issues. There are many like that, and as we get older, the health issues tend to get uh, more and more, many and more of them, and perhaps more significant. But we pray for healing, but from the smallest health issue to the largest, Father. We know that nothing is too difficult for you. With you, all things are possible. We do pray for healing, physical healing in our physical bodies, Lord. And you know each one here today that has that kind of a need, and we ask you to minister to them personally and specifically. Father, for relationships that need mending, healing, repairing, pray that you would give wisdom and guidance as to how to go about that, how to be peacemakers, that those who are representatives of reconciliation, Lord, just heal broken relationships, we pray. And we pray for provision. Lord, we know that these are difficult times. Many people have lost their livelihoods, and you promise to meet our needs, not our wants necessarily, and sometimes as Americans, our wants far outweigh our needs, but we just lift up each one here today that has a need that you would provide for them. And Lord, we know that one of the ways you do that is through the body of Christ. So help us to be sensitive to one another, aware of one another's needs and where we can come in and help to meet those needs. But we pray that you would provide, whether it be for a job or Lord, if no job is uh, there, that you'd provide by other means. You're certainly able and capable of doing that. So we lift all these things up to you, Lord, and we pray for those with anxiety, stress, doubt, fear. Lord, none of that's from you, so we reject all of that in Jesus' name. Lord, we renounce all doubt, all, all fear, all anger, all bitterness, all resentment. Take it from us, Father. Help us to walk in love, to walk in peace. We thank you for your word. We ask you to continue to give us wisdom and guidance and direction through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.